Amen. Well, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 1. As you do that, we're just going to take a moment of silence, invite the Lord to prepare our hearts today to hear from Him. So, Acts chapter 1, let's be still before the Lord. God, we are reminded this week that it's, it's difficult for us to be still and uh, to turn off the distractions. Lord, I, I pray that you'd impress upon the hearts of, of our people and this nation how difficult it was for one day this week to not have the internet and to not be able to be distracted all the time. And uh, Lord, let us learn that lesson and let us apply that lesson here today. God, we confess our hearts are just always running a mile a minute. And because we believe that we need to hear from you, Lord, allow that belief, if that is what we believe, Lord, allow that belief to dictate our behavior today. Lord, I pray that you'd help us now to focus, help us to lean in, help us to intentionally wage war with the distractions in our minds that come. Uh, Lord, we recognize that it's a spiritual fight too. Uh, We have an enemy who doesn't want us to hear from you. Uh, Lord, there's an enemy who doesn't want me to open the word and speak today. And we just acknowledge that you're greater than the evil one. So we ask, Lord, deliver us from evil this day. Prepare us and and open our eyes and our minds and soften our hearts. Lord, there's hard hearts today here in this place that are just hard to you. Lord, soften them, I ask. God, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever forever. And Lord, and the word goes forth and it never returns void. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd fill us with great anticipation, expectation today as we look to your word. God, speak. God, change. God, heal. God, renew. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, we're here in Acts chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter. And some of you haven't been with us for the beginning of the series. So I want to give you a very quick on-ramp. Because understanding where this text sits in the story actually is going to shape the way that you hear it. So thus far in this book, Luke has led us to consider the ascension of Christ. The ascension is after Jesus died on the cross and three days later he rose from the grave. There were then 40 days when he was with his people. And in those 40 days he taught us how to see him in the Bible. He taught us how to read the Old Testament. And in those 40 days he shaped the men who would become the teachers of the church. And then after 40 days, he ascended into heaven. But before going, he gave his people, which is us, an impossible assignment. He said, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then upon giving this incredibly impossible assignment, then he ascended to heaven. And that's where we left off last week with the disciples staring up, wondering what on earth are we going to do and an angel comes to them and says what are you doing staring up into heaven go you've got work to do that's where we picked up last week that's where we stopped and in chapter two of acts this promise of power that jesus made before he left because when he gave them the impossible assignment he also said i'm going to give you power the holy spirit's going to come upon you 
So he promised them that they would have the power that they need. And in Acts chapter 2, we find that promise of power fulfilled. But we're not there yet. We're in this 10-day window between the Ascension and Pentecost. And once again, I'm, like an, I'm, a, I'm a dates guy. This stuff's interesting to me. Did you know there were 10 days between the Ascension and Pentecost? It's interesting. You know? Sure, you like, they walk away. Okay, he's promised us power. We've got this crazy assignment. He told us to wait. And so then they, they march back and, and they wait. For 10 days they wait. I, th- I think that's fascinating. And in those 10 days, I'm sure lots of things happen. I, for one, would like to know what did they talk about as they walked back to Jerusalem. You know, it's like an angel, every time an angel appears to somebody in the Bible, they fall down as though dead on the ground, right? So this wasn't like a, a little experience. This was a huge experience. What did they talk about as they walked back to Jerusalem? I'd like to know. Luke doesn't tell us. As they get to Jerusalem and they meet their fellow believers, I wonder what that conversation was like. The, the believers are like, hey guys, where's, uh, where's Jesus? And they're like, he, uh, <laughs> I got a story for you. You know, I would love to have heard how that conversation went. Luke doesn't include that detail. He zooms in instead on two seemingly ordinary events. And that in itself is interesting and should cause us to lean in. Why does he focus in on these events? What is he trying to say? And I will say as we jump into the text, we as a people are just impatient. Or at least I am. I'm going to impose that upon you. I'm impatient. Right? We see the... Let's, so let's say I'm thinking about the, my favorite sports hero, LeBron James. And I'm interested. You know, you see when he wins the championship when he's in high school. And then you want to fast forward to the, the big block in the playoffs. And, you know, his first championship and his second championship. But the reality is that in between these events, there was this not-so-interesting period of waking up really early and working harder than everybody else. But that period's not all that interesting. And yet... This thing over here that's so exciting wouldn't have happened without this seemingly ordinary time. And I would say in these 10 days, we find one of those seemingly ordinary moments. And Luke's saying, man, you're not going to understand what's coming unless you see this. So let's look to the Word of God. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And by God's grace, let's pray that we see what it is that he would have us see. Hear God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, active word to us today. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, This man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. 
So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I said, lots of things would have happened in those ten days, but Luke opted to zoom in on these two events, which means that there's something here that we are meant to see. So what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in on these two events and we're going, to, we're going to pull out by God's grace two enduring principles for today. But before we do that, I do want to do something else. And I want, very briefly, I want to diffuse one landmine or potential landmine in the text. And we could have skimmed past this and truth be told, in a few of my drafts I did skim past this. But I think it's worth addressing. Perhaps you're here and you've heard it said that the Bible is filled with contradictions. Have you ever heard that is it just me? This is, I mean, if your kids are in high school or going into high school, they'll hear this plenty. Or if you've ever been on the internet, the argument goes, oh, you believe that the Bible is a holy book? The Bible can't even keep its own story straight. And very often, one of the examples that's cited, because it's seen to be the unanswerable uh, contradiction, they point to the death of Judas Iscariot. Now, to be fair, The two accounts that we have of the death of Judas do appear to be very different. And so I don't want you to be caught off guard by that. If someone were to say that to you one day, I want to prepare you to be able to give a defense for your faith. But I would say even more than that, I just want to prepare you to to have confidence in the Word of God. And so let's just look at these two accounts so that we're not blindsided by this one day on the internet. You find the other account of Judas' death in Matthew 27. You're welcome just to flip back in your Bible a few pages. It's the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew 27, and I'll read from verse 3 to verse 8. Remember in Luke's account that we find in Acts, he says that Judas died by falling headlong and bursting open. Uh, You'll probably remember that. Um, And then he also says that he that Judas bought the field. Judas purchased it. Well, here's Matthew's account of this scene. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and they brought with them, they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. At which point the scoffer on the internet says, Aha, you fool! You believe the Bible? And he thinks he's caught you in some uh, insurmountable. Uh, objection. But my question for you is, are these really irreconcilable differences? Is it really impossible to hold these two accounts together? And my answer for you, I would put forward, is that no, it's not irreconcilable 
at all. So let's just very quickly diffuse this little landmine so that you're ready to do that in the future if you need to. Who bought the field? Matthew says that it was the chief priests and Acts says it was, it was Judas. And so how do we hold those together? Well, it was Judas's money that bought the field. So Judas bought the field, right? And, but in Matthew, it says he, th- he threw that money down, but they didn't receive it. They said, this is blood money. This is your money, not our money. And then they picked this money up off the floor when he left and they bought a field with it. So who bought the field? Well, Judas bought the field through the chief priests. I don't find that to be particularly irreconcilable. And that's what we see in Scripture. So that's our answer to the first objection. The second one is a bit grotesque, but right in Matthew's Gospel, we learn that Judas hanged himself. But in Acts, it says that he fell forward and burst open. It's very reasonable to put those two together and to say that he hanged himself. And days later, he fell from whatever it was he was hanging himself from and burst open. It feels very gross saying this, but you wonder why would, why would Acts include that account? Well, Luke was a doctor. And Dr. Luke probably found that a bit interesting. And Dr. Luke was in the midst of proving that Judas was receiving judgment for his wickedness. Peter, Remember, this is Peter's sermon. Peter's preaching. Like, Judas has received the judgment. And then he points back and he says, don't you remember how he burst open? And so you can understand why we would have two different accounts. But they're the same accounts. They're just, it's just from two different perspectives. Now, having said that, if there's a skeptic in this room or if you're talking to a skeptic at work, do I think that those explanations will have convinced the skeptic? Absolutely not, right? Because the skeptic's got a hard heart and they have 101 reasons why they don't want to worship the Lord and they don't want Jesus to be the king of their life. And so, no, I don't think they're going to fall on their knees in repentance after you explain this to them. However, I think it's worth walking through this because... Young believers or new believers, I want you to know you can trust your Bible. All right, this is often pointed to as one of the most complex contradictions in the Bible. And it took us about five minutes to find a reasonable explanation. So just be still, be calm. Uh, don't, be, don't let your faith be swayed in these moments. When you see an objection, just open your Bible and, and work through it. And you'll find an answer. Now, we could have skipped past that, but I'm praying that maybe one person will find that helpful as they move forward. What I do want to spend the bulk of our time doing now is considering these two events that Luke is zooming in on and asking the question, why is he drawing our attention to these events? So many things happened in those 10 days that he could have talked about, or better yet, he could have just skipped past it and gotten to Pentecost where the the fireworks begin. What is it about these events that causes him to zoom in? Well, let's consider that. The first event that he would draw our attention to is A prayer meeting. Immediately following Jesus' ascension, Luke wants us to know that the church turned to prayer. So look at verses 12 to 14 again of Acts chapter 1. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then he lists the apostles. And this is the same list that he included in the Gospel of Luke. Minus one apostle, right? Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So we see the remaining 11 apostles together with the women which would have certainly included the women who found the empty tomb 
They're still here worshiping together. And Mary, Jesus' mother. And then interestingly, actually, Jesus' brothers are also here. And that's interesting because Jesus' brothers, you remember, in, in his earthly ministry, they were not worshipers. Jesus' brothers thought that he was insane. When we meet them in the Gospels, they're trying to pull him out of places, like thinking, our brother has lost his mind. And yet here, after the resurrection, even the harshest skeptics are now worshipers and part of the community of God. And what we find in this scene is our first glimpse of the New Testament church. And as we find the New Testament church, and as we see them for the first time, Luke wants us to see that they are gathered together of one accord, praying. It's a prayer meeting. They're overwhelmed. Their world has just been flipped upside down for the tenth time in two months, right? They're, at this point, they're a bit confused. They're probably a little bit frightened. I would assume that they are, they're quite overwhelmed, and what they are doing is they are praying desperately, earnestly. And Luke wants us to see this, but what's really significant is Luke wants us to see this first. Later on in this book, we're going to see these same disciples working powerful miracles. We're going to hear them preaching transformative sermons. We're going to watch as they march into cities and entire cities fall under conviction. We're going to hear about how the world was really turned upside down. And if we had seen all of that first, we might be tempted to ascribe all of the powerful working to the wrong person. But Luke won't have any of that. So he starts us here. He draws our attention to an ordinary prayer meeting in an upper room. Men and women with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. Commentator I. Howard Marshall notes, If the Holy Spirit is the divine gift which empowers and guides the church and he is, then the corresponding attitude towards God is prayer. It is as the church prays that it receives the Spirit. This brings us to our first enduring principle. So let's zoom up now and let's think about how we apply what we are seeing here to life. Enduring principle number one, prayer precedes every great move of God. So why doesn't Luke simply skip ahead to Pentecost? Because he wants us to understand that we don't have Pentecost without this prayer meeting. We don't have the powerful events that we're going to find in the book of Acts without this prayer meeting. If the disciples had had skipped this step, so imagine if they had, the ascension happens and the angel says, what are you doing standing here? And Jesus just finished telling them that they're going to go to all the nations. If they had skipped the prayer and simply gone to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, do you know how many converts they would have? Zero converts. There would be no church here in Aurelia if they had skipped this step. Because the apostles were powerless in and of themselves to accomplish anything. And the same is true of us today. The great preacher E.M. Bounds observes, The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come upon machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men. And what kind of men and women are anointed and empowered by the Spirit of God? Men of prayer. And of prayer. Here in this opening scene, any temptation that we might have to exalt the disciples is set aside. Any temptation we might have to ascribe these great works to to men and women is undermined. The early church knew that they could do nothing without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Which leads me to ask an obvious question that you certainly saw coming. Do we know this? 
that we can do nothing apart from the Holy Spirit. I like what one uh, modern author wrote. He says, if we knew what we accomplished for the sake of the kingdom when we're on our knees, we would be tempted never to rise. Show me your best preacher. He can't change a hard heart. Show me your best program. It can't bring spiritually dead people to life. Show me your church growth strategy. Show me your discipleship plan. Show me your 10-year vision. If it doesn't begin with prayer, it doesn't matter what it is, I can tell you how it will end. We must be people of prayer. You know, going back to that sports analogy, because some of you resonate with sports. We're so excited when we see the great successes. But we understand, of course, don't we, that if it wasn't for these ordinary moments of of waking up before everyone else and working harder than everyone else, there would be no great moments. We're all excited about the the scene, the the triumph, the victory, but the victory doesn't come apart from the the behind-the-scenes work. And what Luke is, is having us see here in this opening scene is that, man, you're about to see some victory, some triumph, some glory. You're going to be really excited about that. But you need to understand that that doesn't happen without this behind-the-scenes work. That it is when the church comes together and seeks the Lord earnestly and desperately in prayer. That is what changed the world. Those are the people that God anoints and blesses and uses. And if you try to skip this step and jump out and you're really excited about doing powerful things, you might be motivated with great motivations, but you're going to fall on your face because God doesn't share His glory. And He won't have you walk away from this thinking that it was you, Redeemer. That it was you, Pastor Levi, who accomplished these works. It was not. It was God. And in prayer we learn this. If you were at our annual general meeting then you would have heard our theme verse for this year. I'll repeat it for you now. It comes from Luke 11, verse 1. And our theme verse, our prayer for this year is, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. That's the first event that Luke draws our attention to. It's the first enduring principle that we find in this passage. But there's one more that Luke would have us consider. So we're going to look at one more event and pull out one more enduring principle. The event is... An ordination service. Now, they wouldn't have called it that. But that's essentially what was happening. An ordination service, setting apart a new apostle. We find this in verses 15 to 26. And in this service, it begins with a sermon from the apostle Peter. He stands up and he addresses this group of 120 believers. And he opens the word of God and he, and he prepares them and he processes through what has just happened with Judas. Judas. And in processing through this, he turns their attention to the Psalms. Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, to be specific. And this is interesting, because here in these sermons, we find our first glimpse of the Apostle Peter's new approach to the Scriptures. Because remember, before Jesus opened the disciples' eyes to see him on every page in the Bible, they didn't have a clue how these things pointed forward to Christ. And Peter was guilty of this. So many times, Peter would be rebuked, by Jesus because he wasn't connecting the dots. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to come and he's going to die for the sins of the people. And remember Peter rebuked him? He said, Jesus, no, no, no. That's not what the Messiah does. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because you don't understand yet, Peter. Well, here's the same man. But now he's opening up the Psalms and he's reading Psalm 69 and 109 and he's seeing Jesus and he's up and he's preaching to the church. This is fascinating. And he's, one commentator notes, if we were to read Psalm 69 or 109, 
without the illumination of this interpretation, Peter's sermon here, we should never dream that there was a reference in them to Judas or that there was a reference in them to the Messiah. But Peter saw the connection because Jesus has transformed the way that he reads the Scriptures now. So Psalm 69, for example, is a psalm about an innocent sufferer. But now, as Peter opens up this psalm, he realizes that Jesus is the innocent sufferer. And so this psalm points forward to him. And because of that, in verse 25 of Psalm 69, he sees this curious verse, and suddenly this verse makes all the sense in the world to him. He quotes it. May his camp become desolate. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And Peter looks up from his Bible and says, Aha! It is just as the Holy Spirit foretold. Judas has received the judgment that was promised. Right? Psalm 69 told us this would happen. This is a new, this is a new understanding of the Scriptures for Peter. He's now seeing Jesus. And then he flips ahead to Psalm 109. And in Psalm 109, you've got this imprecatory psalm. And again, it's dealing with an innocent sufferer and his prayer for his accusers. And, and he puts this prayer into Jesus' mouth. Let another take his office. And Peter says, do you see? It's, it's the will of Jesus that we find another to take Judas' office, to take his place. What a change those 40 days made. Peter sees now that the Old Testament is all pointing forward to Jesus. So then the church applies this, and they appoint another apostle. But you can't just appoint anybody, right? So it's not like they just said, all right, you are an apostle. No, he walks us through the qualifications. We find these in verse 21 to 22. Who can be an apostle? So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So he says, it can't just be anybody. We need someone who was with us for Jesus' ministry. Starting with when John the Baptist baptized him and he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. From that moment all the way to when he ascended to heaven. Meaning someone who's seen his resurrection too. A witness of his ministry and resurrection. We need someone from that group to serve as an apostle. And so then they set apart two of their best candidates. And they set apart Joseph and they set about Matthias. But rather than making the final selection on their own, they decide we, we need Jesus to ultimately select the final apostle. Because it was Jesus that selected us. Uh, John, I think it's John 15, 16. Um, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So the disciples are like, Jesus chose us, therefore Jesus must choose this last apostle, and so they say we will cast a lot for this final apostle. We read this in verses 24 to 26. They say, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, some folks struggle with this idea that they cast lots. It feels trivial. It feels like, well, was that a careless thing to do? But nowhere are they rebuked for their approach here. They prayed earnestly. Then they screened the potential candidates. And then they put forward the two that seemed to them to be the best. But then rather than making the final decision on their own, they 
cast lots, which is kind of the equivalent of casting a die in our day. But this makes sense because these were Jewish men. And in Proverbs 16.33, we read, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And they wanted to hear from the Lord on this last selection. And so they cast the lot, and Matthias was appointed. And there we have it, our twelfth apostle. Now we're whole and we're ready to go. But it does beg the question, why did they need a twelfth? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. But why 12? I mean, they had 11, and the reality is everybody knew what happened to Judas, so I don't know that anybody would have been judging them. Like, that was a pretty understandable situation. We get it. There's only 11 of you now. But they didn't want to proceed with 11. And, but then they found two qualified candidates. So you wonder, well, why not go with 13? The baker's dozen. Like, now if there's an accident, you don't need to do this again because you got your 12. But no, 13 won't do. 11 won't do. They needed 12. Why is that? Well, it's because the disciples, the apostles, they understood what it is that Jesus came to do. Jesus came to to judge Judaism for straying so far from God's plan. Jesus came to tear the covenant community right down to the studs, to grind them down to a single stone himself, and then to build them back bigger and better than ever before. Which is why after cleansing the temple and announcing judgment against the hypocritical religious leaders of the day, Jesus said this. He said, have you ever read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then he leans in to apply the scripture and he says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So Jesus came and he assessed the Judaism of his day. He assessed what it had become, how far it had strayed from the will of God. And he said, I am coming and I'm taking the kingdom away from you now. And I'm I'm tearing down this abomination that's been built in the image of man. This isn't what God intended. And I'm going to give it to someone who's going to produce the fruits that God has in store. You're not ready. The Israel of God needed to be healthy enough, needed to be strong enough, needed to be flexible enough to accommodate the influx of the nations that had been foretold throughout the ages. And that's what we're being prepared for here. Therefore, just as Israel had the 12 tribes, Jesus intentionally set apart the 12 apostles to show the continuity in what he was doing. He wanted them to see this connection. In Luke 22, he makes this connection explicit He speaks to the apostles and Jesus says, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. Right? So he told the Jews, he's like, I'm taking this kingdom away. He looks at the apostles, he says, I am assigning to you a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus says to the 12 apostles, he says, you 12 are the the new 12, the true 12. Therefore, when the disciples looked around the room after the ascension and they realized there's only 11 of us now, they identified that as a problem and they were right. They wanted to preserve the witness that Jesus had intentionally built in. One commentator notes, the 12-fold witness was required if early Jewish Christianity was to represent itself to the Jewish nation as the culmination of Israel's hope and the true people of Israel's Messiah. Now, I feel like some of you at this point are wondering, what on earth 
maybe this is a bit challenging for you. We often emphasize the discontinuity between the old and the new. There is discontinuity, by the way, between the old and the new. Uh, and so, like, for example, Jesus came and he said, you know, he used this parable that you don't, you don't take new wine and just pour it into the old wineskins. The, the wineskins would burst. It doesn't work that way. He says, it's, it's a new, there's something new that is happening and it's different, right? He did come and he proclaimed judgment on so much of what the people of God had become. And he came and he said, I'm, I'm doing a new thing. And that is true. There's a discontinuity there. But what he proceeded to build was in reality what God had planned from the beginning. There was a great continuity. And Jesus was careful to, to make that clear as well. So Jesus chose 12 apostles so as to clearly demonstrate to the Jewish people who he loved, who he wanted to come and follow him. He wanted them to see that this was the true thing. He wanted the Jews to see that this is everything that God had in store. The promised Messiah had come. And the apostles, who also love the Jewish community, who also want to see their brothers and sisters come to Christ, they wanted to preserve that continuity. So they didn't move forward with 11 or 13. They insisted upon 12. Now, seeing that, I want to zoom out as we conclude and just draw forth one last enduring principle. Here's our second enduring principle today. God renovates before he builds. God renovates before he builds. So think about this. Could there have been a widespread conversion of the Gentiles, of the nations? Could there have been a mass conversion of the nations in the Judaism of Jesus' day? Could Jesus just have come and said, hey, I'm the new high priest, and so let's, here, here come the nations. Are you ready? Bear in mind, what happened when Jesus went into the temple? Do you remember what happened? The one time that we see Jesus fuming mad, he, he walks into the temple and he walks into the court of the Gentiles. What is the court of the Gentiles? Who designed the temple? God designed the temple. Why did God institute that the court of the Gentiles would be a part of the temple? Because God wanted there to be a place in the temple where all of the nations could come and they could pray and they could worship. That's what the court of Gentiles was supposed to be. But when Jesus comes into the temple, what does he find in the court of the Gentiles? He finds tables and, and money changers and lenders and they're selling animals for the sacrifice and this room has just been taken over to prepare for the worship that's going to happen over there in that room. And nobody can come in here to pray or to worship. There's no room for the Gentiles. There's no room for the nations. And Jesus flips over the tables and he says, this was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. You've turned it into a den of robbers. And he leaves and he says, I'm, I'm rejecting what you have made this. It's, it needs to be torn down, right down to the studs, and we're going to build it up again on the cornerstone. That's me. And we're going to build this afresh, and we're going to build this anew. It needed to be torn down before the rebuilding could take place. That's often the way that God works. It's often what he does. So let's move away from that now and think about ourselves and how this principle applies to us, Redeemer City Church. God often needs to tear things down before the building can take place. And I was just reflecting on, just it's a thought exercise, right? Because we're always praying, like, Lord, would you draw lost people to yourself? Would you save people? Lord, would you, would you do a mighty work in this city? Would you save people? Okay, thought exercise. God saves 100 people from our city today, and they show up here next Sunday. 
and they're worshiping with us. Now, obviously, what are we going to do with parking? And, oh, we better figure out this ushering thing soon. And the kids, it's just going to be... I'm not talking about that, though. I'm talking about in our heart. Let's think about this. A hundred brand spanking new believers are here. And they're wildly immature in their faith. And, and they're noisy, and they come in, and they're dressed differently than you think is appropriate. Some of them are wearing ball caps. Some of them come in with, the, with their beverages. And, and in the service, they're not conducting themselves the way that you think that they should. Like, one of them keeps getting up and down, and he's going to, he, third smoke break, for goodness sake, in the sermon. Get a handle on yourself. And it's just distracting. And one of them's kind of stinky, and he's beside me. And this whole thing, and they like different music than we like. And this whole... Would we see these 100 brand spanking new believers in our midst, which would absolutely change our culture? Would we see it as the blessing from God that it is, or would we just be annoyed that they're messing with our carefully curated worship experience that we've grown to know and love? Thank you very much. And I'm asking in my heart, would we? Just to thank you. I'm asking in my heart, what would, would we? Would we? And you say, well, that's just a ridiculous question. Certainly we would. Certainly we would see it as a blessing. Certainly we wouldn't hold so tightly to our preferences that we'd lose sight of God's mission for the world. And I'm just saying it's worth asking because you know there were a bunch of God-fearing Jewish men and women who walked into the temple to worship with their family and they walked past the court of the Gentiles year after year and they saw as the tables and the money changers and the lenders were set up where the nation should be worshiping and they didn't think once about it because they were going to have their worship experience that they were excited to enjoy together as a family. And it wasn't until Jesus walked in and said, this is wrong, and he flipped the tables, that anybody realized, we've lost it. He often just tears it down before he can build anything that will resemble what it is that God would build. And I just wonder, is that true here? When 100 people come in, are they going to find a family that they can plug into, or are they going to find that all of the circles have all been closed off? And I've got plenty of friends, thank you. Are they, are they going to find that there's room for them to grow in their maturity and there's room for them to grow in holiness? Or are they going to feel the piercing stares of people who call themselves mature Christians, judging them? People like me, judging them. What are you getting up again for my sermon? What, why are you being so noisy? Why are you snickering? Would they be able to come and hear and worship and grow in this place? Oh God, I pray that they could. I pray that they would. But can I tell you something? I'm certain that he won't send them until that's true of us. Let's think of it personally. We talked about corporately. Let's think about, let's talk about me. Let's talk about you. Sometimes God just has to tear us down to the studs before he can build what he needs to build in us. I wonder if there's anything in your life right now that is, a, is an absolute barrier to what God would do in your life. I mean, the court of the Gentiles thing, it was, it was literally, a, it was a physical barrier. There's, they can't come in and worship. There's, there's tables and chairs and chickens, and, probably not chickens. They can't come in. There's literally physical barriers. I wonder in our personal lives, are there things, are we praying like, Lord, Lord, would you, would you use me? I want to lead that Bible study. And yet, and yet there's this addiction over here that we're harboring. Realize he's got to tear that down before he's going to use you for this. Or are we like, Lord, Lord, I want to, be, I want to see effectiveness in my evangelism. Well, he's going to have to deal with that anger problem, that pride problem in your heart first, isn't he? 
Lord, Lord, I want to, I want to be mobilized for mission. Well, he's going to have to address that anxiety in you. R.C. Sproul wisely wrote, from brokenness to mission is the human pattern. From brokenness to mission. He breaks you down. He exposes all of the nonsense you've been carrying. You know, because the scary thing is, the nonsense in us that needs to be broken down, we don't see it. We got, we're looking at this in my head. Oh, you know, I probably need to deal with this. The reality is God's looking at this. And he's like, all of this needs to go before you're going to be ready. In this passage, we see the torn down, started from scratch foundation of the church. We see them together in a small room, humbly pleading with the Lord to send power. We see them studying the scriptures, seeking the will of God for their next steps, striving to be obedient to what he's revealed to them. We see a people who are finally ready to be used by the Lord to change the world. And we're going to see some exciting things in the days to come. But if we ever want to be used by the Lord to accomplish exciting things here in our midst, it's important that we see this first. This seemingly ordinary scene is where powerful ministry starts. This is where revival in the city starts. This is where transformation starts. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, you taught us that the one who tends to the vine cuts off all the branches that don't bear fruit. And, and he cuts those things off because he wants there to be fruit. Lord, and we confess with our mouths that we want there to be fruit in this church. Lord, let that be true of us. Lord, I pray against the idolatry in our hearts that would be more attached to the dead branches of the vine than the fruit that is in store. Cut it off if it doesn't bear fruit, God. I pray personally, Lord, for each and every one of us here as we are all members of this body and so the health of every member affects the health of the body, Lord, and there are things in us certainly that need to be cut off. And Lord, I confess that I feel as if I'm in a season where you're, you're grinding me right down to the studs. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see in the pain that that is exactly where we need to be. Just entirely emptied and broken. Ready to be used by you. So Lord, I pray. Lord, I, in my head, I'm just seeing these clenched hands and the fingers just slowly opening up. Lord, I pray that you would help us to just stop clenching so hard to these things that are keeping us from being used by you. Uh, these things that are keeping us from the plan that you have for our lives, for our families, for this city, for this world, for this congregation. Lord, we help us to lay it down. And Lord, we confess that, oh Lord, we're very quick to clench our fists again. So Lord, I pray against any emotional manipulation that might have happened here. I'm not trying to manipulate anyone, God. And I know that any such thing would, will disappear the instant I, I close this prayer. We'll walk back out into the world and we'll go back to all of the old things that we've been indulging in. But Lord, if it's from you, if your Holy Spirit is working, then hard hearts are actually being softened. You're replacing them with hearts of flesh. 
and, and idols actually are being toppled down. And Lord Jesus, you're taking your place on the throne of the hearts of your people and the heart of this church. I pray that that would be what happens in this place. Lord, we want to be used by you. And, and Lord, we want to be used by you because you deserve worship. You deserve the worship from this congregation. Lord, you, you deserve the worship from every man and woman, boy and girl in this city. You made them. Uh, you, have, you have shown such tender mercy and kindness. The sun rose on us again today. It's a beautiful day, Lord. And, and you deserve the praise for all of it. Oh, Lord, the families we enjoy. Most of all, the grace that we've received in Christ. You sent your son to die for us who could never, ever deserve this. And you deserve praise. Lord, I pray that we would give it to you freely. And so, Lord, we ask for all of these things and we ask for them in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?